who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, Geeky Pressers? This is Brad King. I'm your host of the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. So, a few months ago, probably midsummer, I was tweeting exclusively about Appalachia. And while I was doing that, I came across a whole slew of writers and people who were doing things very similar to what I was doing with my book, So Far Appalachia, which will someday be out. One of the people that I came across was a woman named Carrie Lee Merritt, who wrote this book called Masterless Men. And I have this show. I love writing. I love writers. um, I love Appalachia. This book is about the antebellum South and poor white workers but I ordered the book immediately as I was sort of tweeting with her and and seeing the conversations that she was having with people and got the book and read the first chapter and was like live tweeting me reading the book and like freaking the fuck out because it's so good and it's good for this reason it's good for lots of reasons but this reason in particular it is We are at a time and place in America where we need to have a serious discussion about class, and particularly white people need to have the discussion about class, and specifically about the class structures in 
in the class differences between poor whites, middle class whites, and rich whites because of the structures that have made the class system in America are really devastating. Which doesn't mean that I'm not like down with capitalism. Like I make a good living. I like what I do. I've always liked what I've done. Um, but that doesn't mean that the structures of the way in which power is kept um, don't need to be discussed. And so, you know, what I've tried inelegantly in my book to address that from sort of a non-historical, non-data-driven, it's very much a story of a family, my family, as told by me. And so to the extent that I talk about historical forces, like the second part of the book sort of has that, although I'm restructuring that to make it more personal and less historical. Um, and that's important. And then I get Masterless Men by Carrie Lee. And it is this historical, thick historical fucking construct of the sort of post sort of end of slavery, post-slavery, antebellum South, and the ways in which the upper-class white folks set up the capitalist structure, one, to maintain power, two, to drive down labor costs, and three, to make sure that poor whites and poor blacks were competing against each other, which sort of inherently brings out anytime there's economic insecurity, we've heard this in the media without any real fucking deep, sustained, long discussion about what this means. When there's a deep economic insecurity, the people at the bottom, and particularly the white people at the bottom, will have the worst of the rest of their fears come out, right? If you're black or brown and you're at the bottom, your worst fears are that you're going to be killed or, you know, ostracized or cut out. Like, And if you're at the bottom and you're white, your fear is that the middle and upper class white folks are going to cast you into the lot of the black and brown people. And so there is a, a deep fear that certainly comes from the sort of racist background and the racist scaffoldings that exist in this country. But there's another component of it, right? And so it's a the point in time where we're at right now where we have to be able to have this sort of discussion of the intersection of race and class and how it me how it works together and what it means for us, I think is really important. And the discussion that Carrie Lee and I had was really about how hard it is to have that discussion because it always has to start this way. I'm not excusing the racism and the misogyny and the homophobia that exists in these rural areas. And here's where the tricky part comes because the next word is but. But there are reasons for that to happen that maybe are out of their control, right? Structures were put in place to ensure that that was the outcome. Doesn't excuse it, but it means the forces around them were set up to make sure those things played out in the way that would keep people divided. That's a really fucking hard discussion to have if you're white, right? Like, 
Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, like there's a long history of African-American leaders, scholars talking about this. But at the end of the day, this is a white problem. This is a problem that we have made, structures that we have put in place, and that we then rely on other people to talk about and fix, right? So as I'm sort of reading this body of literature that's coming out, the white trash, masterless men, there are these people that are beginning to have these discussions about understanding the sort of complexities of whiteness, the ways in which the structures of the economy have been set up to drive wedges between people and what the responsibility is for those of us that are from those areas, those of us that write about those areas, those of us that call those areas home, like what is our responsibility? And that's a really fucking important discussion and it's a really hard discussion and it is a discussion that the news media just frankly is not really equipped to handle because this is a long, sustained, quiet discussion that needs to take place repeatedly with groups of people, it's not necessarily newsworthy, but it maybe is the most important discussion that we're having today. So I was really, I have been fanboying all over Carrie Lee for like five months, six months. Um, well, all the way back to March, I started talking about having her on the podcast at South by Southwest last year. Um, so that's been almost nine months now. Um, the book is called Masterless Men. Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. She is fucking brilliant. And um, you'll hear, there's a moment as we get about 15 minutes in where the fire starts to come out as we sort of move on from how she got started into what's important. And that voice is the voice that's, that's in this book. And particularly for people, you know, if you are from rural areas or you are interested in why rural areas are the way in which they are today, this is a flat-out straight history book. She is not connecting it to Donald Trump. She is not connecting it to, you know, the post-industrial workforce. It is a book about the antebellum South. And you will read every page. And if you are from those areas or been through those areas or spent any time in these rural areas, you will understand there is a direct line from what she's writing about to where we are today. So I'm really fucking excited to have her on, particularly coming on the heels of our last discussion with Victoria Toback, who did Contact High, A Visual History of Hip Hop. There's a lot of conversation about the overlapping nature of black and white culture, I think, in both of these. So sit back. Or if you're driving, stay where you're seated. Keep your eyes on the road. And I'd like to introduce you to Carrie Lee Merritt and her book, Masterless Men. I think you're going to... Okay, so I'm one chapter away from being done with this book, and I have tweeted you like a thousand times as I've been reading it. And one, it's a great book. It's 
it's one of the best books that I've read. I know it's not about Appalachia, but like, and obviously there are lots of overlaps and parallels between um, the sort of two areas. This is the question that I kept thinking. I sent it to you the other day. How long did it take you to, to do all the research for this book? I honestly started really researching at least secondary sources, really getting into the subject matter in college. And I spent uh, a year studying abroad in Dublin, Ireland, because of the old idea of this, you know, this Celtic thesis, this honor thesis of the South, of this being, you know, a largely Scotch-Irish population. You know, you still hear these things today. Right. Um, Malcolm Gladwell. Economics, <laughs> yeah. I mean, economics, <laughs> they still use these kind of theories. Um, so I went over to try to really see if there was that uh, that sort of connection. And I found that it wasn't really true. And, <laughs> and, and so to the shock of nobody from the area. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone who, who comes from here knows that knows right. how diverse the South is. It's not just, you know, a static Scotch Irish white culture. And of course that's not what shapes, uh, what goes on in, in the region on a socioeconomic level by any means. And, and so I really started doing, um, research the first year I went into grad school. So all told, you know, we're talking about probably, a, you know, off and on researching for close to a decade. Yeah. I mean, this is what it felt like to me. Like, I, I was on Instagram the other day, and I was like, this is not a beach read. Like, you cannot just sit down and read that book from cover to cover. Like, it is a, I take it chapter at a time because it's, there's just a lot. Like, there is a lot of research that goes into, and sort of you breaking down each of the, like education and, you know, poverty and like each big topic then had these big chapters. So it was not surprising that it was 10 years. So let me ask, how do you get on this subject? It's a very specific subject. And if you started this in college, it was clearly before you were getting your PhD. Right. And it's interesting that you feel this, this Appalachian connection. And the truth is, the main reason I got into it is because most of my family comes from the foothills of Appalachia. And even though I didn't grow up there myself, uh, I would be back there quite a lot on holidays and in summers. And, and they literally lived in an old mill village, cotton mill village. My mother grew up in an old cotton mill house and they were incredibly poor. And so going back to these, this, this little small town, as a child, I noticed early on how the upper class and middle class sections of town were completely segregated. <laughs> but when you went into the poor area, the, the mill village housing, you know, that even the street itself was incredibly integrated. And again, I'm not absolving yeah. the poor whites there of racism by any means, but it is a different type of racism when you act, you know, actually live and work and, you know, trade, um, you know, and you're intimate with, with people. Um, as opposed to complete segregation of the upper classes. And so I thought this was a narrative that you never see in Southern history. And, you know, it's always this idea of this solid white, you know, Confederate um, South. And I knew early on that there had to be some sort of class divisions going on. I mean, this is like half of Bell Hook's writing, right? Like I was introduced to this idea there's a, she wrote this great book of essays called belonging and i don't know if you've read it but she says basically exactly what you just said like i lived in this small place in kentucky and yes certainly we were poor and certainly there was racism but you lived on top of each other and you were poor so it was a right. different experience than when she went to stanford and she said that was the first time she was called the n-word uh the b-word there's another one 
but she was like, because it was impersonal. So people would bring their prejudices and they could just do them without any consequence. Like you weren't waking up next to them for 20 years. Right. Sociologists, you know, show this all the time that, um, you know, racism a lot of time, it it doesn't apply to the people, you know, on a personal basis. Sure. You make exceptions for the people you personally know. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back then. So, uh, where was your, where were your, where were you from? I was born in southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, actually, um, but that was just because my parents were down there going to school at the time, and uh, and so moved to Metro Atlanta, Newt Gingrich's district, which was kind of <laughs> rural at the time, yeah. uh, you know, in the, the mid-80s, but um, lived lived in Metro Atlanta my whole life, escaped to the city as soon as I could to go to Emory for undergrad, um, and then have stayed in Atlanta since then. And what did your parents do? My father's a psychologist, actually, but um, he does business psychology, uh, was not an academic at all. And my mother um, stayed home. And uh, are they still around? They are, yeah. Yeah. So what, how did they, like, why did they, you said they were from the foothills. What brought them down? School? Like- uh, school, yes, yeah. My my father wanted to to get a graduate degree, and so you know, there's not there wasn't many options <laughs> in in the you right. know, foothills of South Carolina. Oh, so that's where they were. They were in so yeah. My family's from Clay County, Kentucky, um, which is the New York Times. I think last year, two years ago, did a thing called the hardest place to live in America. It was this huge spread in Clay County has been that place by metric for like the last 20 years. Right. Uh, uh, so yeah, like there's no other than the prison, there's not like stuff to do. Like you're not, go- if you're going to school, you're leaving mm-hmm. and going somewhere else. So you grew up in Atlanta uh, and like, what? so when you were young, were you like, is the writing an outcome of just being an academic or was that a thing you wanted to do? I, I, always loved writing. Definitely. I loved reading. I was a voracious reader. I was never allowed to watch TV or movies, you know, to, to any extent. I didn't have a cell phone or anything like that. So back in the good old I, days, back in the good old days. <laughs> I mean, I'd be in my room, hold up, listening to music and, and either drawing, painting or writing. Um, that was my outlet for a lot of things. And, um, of course, by the time you get into college, unless you're going to try to make art your career, all those things, you know, generally kind of fall by the wayside as you become an adult and have increasing responsibilities. But writing was one thing, you know, that was, it could have been a viable, um, job for me. So I, I was honestly able to stick with that, but I'm ready actually, again, to kind of branch out more into different kind of, uh, kinds of mediums, um, to try to get history out to the masses. Is that what you studied in undergraduate history? History and political science. So what, how do you go, because like I did not do the thing that you said. In my, I have basically done the writing thing uh, most of my life. So you're in college, like what draws you to that? Was it this idea that you had sort of seen things that you were not, rep, that you just didn't think were represented and so you had a curiosity for that? Or how do you end up in history and political science? Well, like I said, I grew up in Newt Gingrich's district, and so, um, you know, I was 13 years old um, during the the 1994 elections and started campaigning for anybody who'd run against Newt. Um, Really? Because even, oh, yeah, even at that time, he was just spewing, you know, 
horrible Crazy. messages, right. hate, hate, hateful messages. And I, even though I don't particularly come from, you know, a very liberal um, background, uh, again, through reading, um, I knew enough to to know to get as far away from nude as possible. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that's what drew me into politics. And, and again, growing up in the South and seeing poverty and racism and, and kind of seeing what politics could do to change so much of that poverty. And, and of course, never really does because, um, because of the way things are controlled down here. But um, it drew me in and, and I wanted to be able to not only explain what's going on in the South, um, but hopefully at some point to come up with solutions to a lot of the South's problems. Yeah. It's interesting for me because as I've looked back, like all of my writing is nonfiction stuff and it is, I had a similar, like, I don't think I was, I don't think I know. I was not as overtly aware when I was younger of the differences because my small town was pretty, there weren't really rich people. You know, it was like mm-hmm. middle class right. and working class folks. Like, and I've told the story, like there's three counties in my town and we literally lived, there was railroad tracks and we lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until later I'm like, Oh shit. Like that was both a metaphor and real. <laughs> you know, like, as Absolutely. You, you drive across the tracks and you're like, Oh shit. Now I'm in the nice part of town. That's uh and so writing for me, I've come like it has been a thing for me to that exploration of not even like what does it mean for the world, but just what does it mean for me, right? Like coming to sort of grips with class in my life, um, that has been a big part of the writing stuff. So you're in college and you're studying this stuff, um, and what you get you get your master's where? Uh, the University of Georgia. I got both my degrees there. The degrees. your master and your PhD. Yes. Uh, and were, were they all in history? Yes. So you just did this thing straight through. I did the thing straight through. And uh, That's honestly, crazy. <laughs> but, but, but a, a couple of years in, I unfortunately had um, kind of financial disaster happen. And they don't pay, you know, at, at these state schools in the South, they don't pay big stipends. It's not enough to live on. You're not even at the poverty level. Um, and um, so I was, you know, living in Atlanta working for because I could make 20 bucks an hour doing office work in Atlanta in the middle of the night, you know, come in with my own key and uh, keep the books for people or whatever, and and then drive back down to Athens and really? PA three days a week. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. I can't believe I, I did not die on the, the highway that, you know, connects the two cities. But, um, again, how, how poverty even plays out in, in graduate school if you don't come from, um, you know, from family money. Yeah, it's... It's so so. I went to Berkeley for for my graduate uh, school, and I've did the calculations. Next year, at the end of twenty nineteen, I have a chance to finally pay off my student loan. Nineteen years after I graduated, um, right. but I worked a full time job. I worked on the facilities, um, like you know, planting trees and painting shit, um, and like went to school around the times that I wasn't working were on facilities, <laughs> like right. trying to finish school was, and they, I was just having a discussion with a friend of mine the other day who's, who came from some money who had no idea. Like she, she like, there was only 40 of us in the program. She's like, well, I just thought you were doing that for experience. And I was like, well, yeah, the experience of having money and being able to afford my apartment. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> was, oh, oh, it was eye opening. I mean, I, I did the area I grew up in. There were a lot of rich kids who, you know, turned 16 and got, you know, Porsches or whatever. For really? But going to Emory was a different experience altogether. It was a whole new level of wealth that, um, 
was just kind of unfathomable to me. And, and I did feel isolated at Emory from a class perspective, very much so. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have the money to go out on weekends, yeah. uh, let alone order a pizza, you know, at night. And, and, and these kids were, uh, you know, living high on the hog off of mom and daddy's money pretty easily. Yeah. It, yeah. It has, um, that was one of the things that like, uh, I don't know if you had this, but I, in graduate school, I was angry. I was mm-hmm. super angry. Yes, yes. Uh, um, and, and I found the other working class kids or kids whose parents weren't financially, you know, just throwing wads of money at them. And um, and we we hung out together. You know, we did things on the cheap. We went to punk shows and, you know, <laughs> took Marta there instead of a taxi. I mean, yeah. that was our life. Yeah, I had a one I had like a a one bedroom apartment that I actually had to get somebody else to live in. She was from Texas, so she had the bedroom in the back, and I slept on a couch. And it was only five hundred and eighty dollars a month for yep. the. So I was paying two ninety a month, and still that was too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there has been that sort of residual anger that has, I think, not think again. I know that has sort of carried through. My just that class thing has as I've become more aware of it. Has that? Do you carry some of that with you? Do you think? Oh yes, absolutely. And I mean, I'm I'm very blessed financially now, um, but I will always carry that chip on my shoulder, probably. And certainly, I do so when um, I think of the class structure of the elite Ivy League schools and things like that, and the the amount in academe, the, the amount of jobs that go to people from these select few schools, that so few people from poor backgrounds or people that are non-white ever have the chance of getting into at all, ever have the chance of saying they have a degree from. And they're effectively then barred from jobs um, at the university level because they don't have this Ivy League PhD behind their names. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that brings, you know, it is, your book is is about that, right? Like it is. What I thought was so interesting about it was it was such a. Um, you've read White Trash. Oh yes. You know, like it was. I I was feeling the same way that I felt when I read that, which is that it is such. It's so difficult to write about poor white people in Appalachia and the South. For lots of reasons, and I say mm-hmm. this as you and I like being from those areas, so not like. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like a fraud because I did go to Berkeley and I left and I've been gone for a while. So I wondered, like, does my story actually resonate anymore and am I able to see it? But also because you have to do what you did right at the beginning, which is like, look, there's a lot of racism and misogyny and like being poor, oh, yeah. like being poor doesn't absolve you of that. Absolutely. But and then in there's some ways a but. It's, it's right. Right. <laughs> right. right. And, and it's and the I but think- that's hard, I think. It, it is because I don't want to absolve anybody from uh, you know from the sins of being a racist, but um, there is a difference when you're constantly fed this stuff by a media who knows that if they can get you to act against your own interest, they make an extra buck. Um, it, it's it's a different thing when you're well educated and have access to information, or if you've been educated in a failing either a rural or inner city school where you don't have the same access to education, you don't have the same access to information. And, and your whole, you know, there should be different standards that we hold people, you know, accountable to. Um, and I, and that's, I think 
how we have to strategize moving forward um, from the perspective of racism. I think we have to take a hard line with the people who know exactly what they're doing, the elite whites who have been well-educated, who know exactly what they're doing, hold them accountable, um, you know, go after them viciously. I'm not, not obviously not violently, but viciously, <laughs> you know, use your pen as your sword viciously. And, and then, but I think we have to approach poor whites and working class whites from a perspective of kindness and understanding and and realizing and understanding their pain and their suffering and what they're going through right now. Um, a lot of the issues are the same things that are going on in minority communities. And there has to be at some point making poor whites trying to, you know, feel some sort of empathy with people of color because so many of the things they're facing on a socioeconomic level are similar. It, but it, yes, and I, you know, this is the the. Um, there's a story in the in in the book. My mentor in graduate school was the baddest black dude that's ever lived in media. Like, you know, he started Morning Edition, and at 28, he worked for Jimmy Carter in the press secretary's office, and was like the first African American, the L.A. Times, to be a bureau chief in the Middle East. Like, he just did everything right, and so you go out, you go to Berkeley to study with him. And it's mm-hmm. a lot of, um, you know, uh, students of color go to study with him. For whatever reason, he took a shine to me. And, uh, year, like, things happened, and uh, years later, we had a conversation about why he let me do things when there were all these other, you know, students of color who wanted to do these things. And the essence that he, I mean, what he said to me was, you think black. And I was like, well, you're going to have to explain what that means. (laughs) And he's like, you were poor. He's like, you know, like you understood what it meant to be. He's like, you don't understand what it meant to be black, but I could help you with that. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. But most of the kids that were at Berkeley came from families of means. And he's like, no matter how much I tried to explain to them what poverty is, it's like you worked a full time job and painted the J school so that you could come here. Mm-hmm. And so when you were going, I ended up running the third largest African-American newspaper in California as part of this class we took. And, you know, like that was sort of weird for me. And he was like, well, I knew you could cover Oakland the way we needed to cover Oakland, which mm-hmm. was just it was one of the first times that it was laid out to me. Like I always felt you know, when I left, and I'm sure you probably had this experience, like the places that I lived, I lived in poor areas when I left school because I didn't have any money. Those tend mm-hmm. to be the black and brown areas of town. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's worth remembering that every great African-American leader has said the same things. Every great, you know, from Martin Luther King to the really uh, revolutionary uh, Black Panther leaders, they all talk about the fact need to bring poor whites into the yeah. movement, and they do. This this history has just been erased. There were white communists in the South, especially in the cotton mills, in the deep South, um, You know, just the same as there were black communists. There, there are white people in the poor people's campaign, then and now. And we have to acknowledge that there's been moments of, of integration over economic issues in the South over and over again, but that they're constantly thwarted by the people in power, by the by the white economic elite, because they know that once the underclasses actually band together, you know, they're fucked. They're yeah. fucked. Um, you know, their, their empire... <laughs> there she is. <laughs> their empire of wealth and greed is going to crumble once people actually take back control 
over their lab- labor power and over politics in this country. It's um, I have an entire shelf of everything Malcolm X. Both I have like all of his speeches and his writings, and then the autobiography. And somewhere I have a audio like tapes of him when he left the Nation of Islam and and started the um, uh, organization of Afro American Unity, where he began talking about those kinds of things. And I was reading that stuff in college and I went to a very white, like less than 2% minority um, college. And again, it was one of those things where like, I didn't know why I gravitated to that other than he was the only person that I ever came across that talked about poverty. Mm -hmm. I went and got a woman studies minor because it was the only place that I could read bell hooks. Like I didn't particularly, I also needed to expand my horizons in some other areas as well, which is why I did that. But like that was a place where class was talked about openly. Right. And it, it was the first time that I felt words to my feelings, right? Like I felt like my anger was justified and not just like, I think I might just be an angry fucking dude, which is a little mm-hmm. scary, right? Like, but being like understanding like, Oh, these structures and systems are the reason for that anger. And so the anger is actually the proper response. Right. And I, I, I actually have been thinking a lot about this lately in representations in the media, um, you know, of poor whites. I'm thinking particularly of Ozark, um, you know, and, and there's this uh, through half the first season, Ruth, you know, the, the poor white heroine, she is literally wearing a Tupac shirt the whole time. And it's like, you know, there's a difference between rich white kids appropriating black culture, I think, and poor white kids really feeling like this, I get this. I understand. This is what yeah. I feel. This is what I experience every day. Yeah. I mean, it's the culture of poverty. Again, it's not racist. You know, it's not racism. It's not, it's not these stereotypes that, that, that racists have of black people. They're exactly what people would say about poor whites at any other period in American history. These are not racist stereotypes. They're stereotypes of poverty yeah. and, and, and they apply to all of us in the underclasses. Um, but they apply to us because of structural reasons to keep us from ever getting a leg up. So I'm reading the book and like I said, you know, the listeners don't know, but you know, like I was tweeting the shit out of you and Instagramming everything because i I seriously feel like we could sit down and just go page by page through that book and have a conversation about our lives on each page. Like that was like it, the book was that personal to me as I read it. I was, and again, some of that I think is because I've read a lot of Appalachian, um, nonfiction books about this stuff. And I think I right. told you the road to poverty is about my family. That, that study is Crane Creek is where my family yeah. is from. Right. So like I've spent a fair amount of time, like, fuck, you know, like yeah. why didn't, and I didn't know any of this till I was 30. My parents hid it from me. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a whole different, that's why I'm writing the book. Like that's a whole different thing, but like it just, I, and I, I sent you the note the other night. I'm like, Oh my God, you have got to write a book of fucking essays. Like, like I know you're a historian and an academic and like, I just want you to write these popular essays because I mean, every page, like there just wasn't a page in that book that I did not feel, um, which does not, thank you. 
Yeah, thank I, you. I, all I did was read it. You did all the work. <laughs> well, I, I am. Um, one of the things I plan to do, everybody's asking, you know, when's your next book? I, I actually really feel like there's been such a shift in society, especially in the last, I don't know, five to ten years. I like the book as a format, but I think that most of society is not going to read a book anymore. And even increasingly, they're not even going to read long essays. Um, I think that historians do try to speak to the public, but I think that often they're using the wrong medium. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we need to move towards more visuals, more video clips. um, You were doing something with National Geographic or something, yeah? Um, I'm going to be on the Science Channel. This is honestly, this is just to get uh, my foot... You know, my feet wet into the, the industry and, and kind of um, figure out I had a huge fear of being in front of the camera. So I conquered that fear on a, a little uh, show on the Science Channel. Um, spent a couple of days filming for them. But um, TV's terrifying, isn't it? It's pretty terrifying, terrifying. But at least I do like the fact that you can t- do multiple takes. Yeah. So if you really mess something up. Um, when, I was at, when I was at Wired, we had to do live. We'd do CNN and shit like that. And it would ruin my whole day because, as I have told people over the years, there was no benefit as a writer. I get nothing from this as a writer. The only thing I can do is say something and end my career. Right. Absolutely. So you're just there and you're like, whatever you do, like, just don't say anything, (laughs) which is a terrible way to approach television. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the way the, the country and especially young people are moving. And unless... You know, I can get historical content to the masses. Um, you know, I don't. I don't see the importance of the work. Um, I, I th- that that is our duty right now as historians is to actually educate the country about our own past because that's part of the problem as to you know, why we're in the state we're in right now. <laughs> yeah, that that is a whole different that, that is a whole different discussion for that, that will require bottles of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is. I don't even like I know we've talked a little bit about writing about poor whites in rural areas and the difficulties and I know like this is so you know with the book that I had I went out to 100 agents about 25 of them said they really liked it but that it's really hard to sell a book about Appalachia. Like basically after JD's book came out, they were like, eh, the country's read about it. They're not really that interested. But I think some of the issue is that I'm also a white dude from there. And like that voice has been predominant in the, even the explanation of who those folks are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there needs to be, in other words, I feel like you're uniquely positioned because you're not a white guy to tell the story in a different way than has been told because people have sort of written about this, but, um, you know, gender and race and class go together in it's just such complex ways in that area that I think it's hard for a white guy to go tell those stories. Right. I, I, I think that's true to a certain extent, but at the same time, um, what, I feel a lot lately, I I think about this as kind of changed because 
I almost feel like it's our duty to go out there yes. um, as white people right now. Like we've created this mess yes. in this country. And yet for so long, we've relied on black people to clean up the mess <laughs> we've made right. and for minorities to clean up the mess we've made. And, and we're still asking them to do this. You know, right. we're, we're asking them to fight for their own rights instead of, you know, as white people fighting for their rights, you know, fighting with them fighting for them. And I think that that needs to be probably the next discussion in race in America yeah. is that white people need to be the ones out there on the front lines doing the heavy lifting, doing the actual work. No. And I think that's a hundred. I mean, I've said that for years. Like it is our, like we fucked this up and so we got to do it. And it doesn't matter if that it's difficult. And it. You know, one of the really, like, as I was working on my book, like, I kept sending it out to my friends and, and who were writers because the whole first third of it is about this sort of the, 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 the Venn diagram of poor white and blackness in America. And I'm like, this mm-hmm. is, it'll rub some people the wrong way. Like, there's just that discussion. You can't have that discussion without treading on things. But I, but I think, like you said, it's our, I think it's our duty to, to do that and to find where those lines are and to um, have conversations that are uncomfortable about these things. And particularly back in like the communities where we're from, like, mm-hmm. I don't know how often you go, like you're back in the foothills. Like, do you interact with lots of rural folks or are you largely? I do. Um, it's, it's been less and less sporadic in the last few years. Um, Especially given the current political climate, <laughs> I, I'm just not willing to put myself through certain things. Sure. But no, yeah, I, I, I definitely get back. It's those conversations are like you know my Facebook feed is really Trump country for the most right. part, which is part of the reason I got off of Facebook as well. Um, yeah, and I don't interact with it because it's a terrible medium to like you know like I tell these folks like I've known you since you were five. Right. You're not going to change somebody's mind on Facebook. No. You can write all day long and it's not happening. Right. And like when we get together at the end of the day, I'm like, I know actually your parents. Like I know the shit you're talking about and that's not true. Right. Like I'm not having that discussion on Facebook. But it is not just about the writing and the talking about it, but it is. This is one of the things that I've been sort of working through is like, what is the responsibility beyond the writing? Like, what is the responsibility beyond the talk? Like, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, but it, like, it seems important that we be the people that are going back there because, like, you know, my my liberal black friends from the coast are not going to go there. <laughs> you know, like, and I would tell them not to. Right, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and what really kind of changed my thinking to some ways and, and kind of changed who I thought my audience was in a lot of ways. Um, I was giving a talk at, at historic Auburn Avenue research library, you know, right, right around where Dr. King lived. Um, and it was a primarily black audience and in, the questions, uh, question answer period, an elderly black lady got up and you could tell she was, she was very emotional. Um, and she said, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a professor of you know, history and race. And she said, I know all this stuff you're saying. And so do a lot of black people. Yeah. You need to be talking to white people. White people are the ones who need to hear this. She said, I'm older than you. I probably know more than you, but they're not going to listen to me. She's like, you looking the way you do, they'll listen to you. And so you go and do that. 
And that kind of, I mean, it floored me at the time. I needed a few days to like really think (laughs) it over. And I was like, that's exactly right. Yeah. That we need to be the ones on the ground in the rural areas, in Appalachia, you know, in South Georgia, actually educating people as to, you know, what would Medicare mean? What would Medicaid expansion mean to you? What would that do to your life? You know, what would it do to your life if there were actually free and fair elections in the state? (laughs) What would it do to your life if the minimum wage was $15 an hour? You know, major questions and really trying to explain to people on a very basic level what, you know, small changes in government could do to their daily lives. Yeah. Yeah. This is the sort of eternal question, though. Like, does that – it doesn't change the, the sort of, um, you know, internal colony thing. Like, where I'm from – Eight companies, you know, in West Virginia, eight companies own 75% of the mineral owning, you know, mineral land. In Kentucky, mm-hmm. eight families owned like 85% of the salt and timber land. And so right. educating folks wouldn't actually make a difference in the sense that the economic structure is still in place. Right, like well, it's it's not if you elected some real progressives who were thinking about doing things that have been advised by by scholars of poverty, you know, sure. on a very basic policy level, you know, from from a universal basic income to federal jobs guarantee. I mean, you could, you're looking at some states where you even have labor commissioners who would probably be able to guarantee something like a a, a state level, um, you know version of a federal jobs guarantee that would revolutionize areas where you have monopsony, which is exactly what you're talking about. Monopsony is when, when you have, you know, one or two employers and people right. have no labor power, no no way to decide who they're going to work for and at what wages. And, you know, what you're going to strike. Striking is doing nothing. Where are you going to go? <laughs> right. You have to move out of the area. Um, and, and so you do have to have, I think, a, a governmental intervention um, in areas like this where there's monopsony. And you know this is the inner um, in I, so hard to so many things like I literally just w- wanted to like sit down and talk with you for like a thousand hours. The in Kentucky, which was largely you know Democrat um, for a long time, right? Well, and in fact, most of the the bad stuff happened when the Democrats were at least in the eighteen you know nineteen hundreds. And so I've told folks like when. When Democrats come in and say in those areas, like, we're going to help you, like, these people haven't left. Like, my family's been there since 1800, and they the stories of these things have been passed down so long that, mm-hmm. like, the idea that the government will help you has always ended up with the government being complicit and taking things from them. Absolutely. Right? And I, under- I understand that completely, and it's, it's like— I mean, exactly what you're seeing in my book. I mean, it, when you've been screwed by the government so many times, you have no real reason to trust them. Right. But at the, at the same time, I mean, you've got a, a real crisis in white America right now. Yeah. Where, And I'm not just talking about politically. I'm talking about people are dying. Right. People are dying earlier than ever before because, uh, it, I mean, we've never had a lifespan shorten, you know, going forward right. throughout history. It, they're shortening for white Americans because of suicide, because of drug addiction, because of this kind of psychic death of, of much yeah. of white I mean, they don't, people don't know where they fit in. They don't feel necessary as laborers. They don't feel any kind of self-worth through their work. Um, communities have dissolved. Communities have been ruined by drugs. Yeah. Um, and the criminal justice system. Because, I mean, let, let's be honest. 
yeah, the rates for African Americans are really, uh, you know, a lot higher than right. for white Americans. But when you're talking about white Americans who are going to jail and prison, you're talking about one class of white right. Americans. <laughs> right. Right. And so you have poor white communities that are hit really hard from meth addictions or from, yeah. you know, heroin addictions even now. Um, and, and and that's something that we don't talk about in white America. No, and it's really it's it was why as I read the book and it was why like I was just I, I take a chapter at a time because you know, when I'm reading fiction books or whatever, like I'll breeze through those and I enjoy the worlds and I enjoy what people are saying, but like your book resonates on so many so many levels because without it being and this is why I kept saying like this is a book about Appalachia, even though Mm-hmm. I know that it is not um, because Appalachia didn't exist as a place. First of all, the, the time when you're writing about um, it, it without ever saying like, this is why today is happening. And I don't know if everybody who reads the book would think that way. I'm so immersed in this stuff that that's just, but literally I'm reading it and I'm like, Oh my God, like every chapter of this book is an explanation about why the world is the way that it is today. And when people say things like, ah, you know, slavery was 100 years ago, I just, you're reading the book and you're like, yeah, but the economic systems and the things that made the country what it is did not go away. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. And, and those shackles are still on. And we're terrible at talking about, oh, we don't even talk about class. Mm-hmm. Like class isn't even a, a discussion that people have. Class is... In America, when there's a discussion of class, it's almost used as um, as a metaphor for race, I think. Um, whenever you talk about class, whenever you talk about poverty, poverty programs, policy especially, white America thinks of black and brown people. Yeah. No. Right? And they bristle with the idea that there is – I had an African-American friend that I taught with a long time ago, and he said the dumbest the – dumbest visual that America has is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because if you grab your bootstraps and pull them you fall on your ass and I was like yeah that's mm-hmm. that seems right <laughs> right but, I mean King gives a whole speech on this right yeah. he's like that that's nice to say but when you don't have boots that's not gonna help you <laughs> right. and it, it just there is this idea like when I talk to my friends from home and we talk about things like well you know I think a libertarian ideal is that no man should worry about their health care and that a system of government or private industry that makes your mental and physical health dependent upon money. As a libertarian, I think health care for everybody seems like the most libertarian idea of all time because Mm. it's freeing you from a structure to allow you to be the best you. And just the amount of bristling that comes back at me because they so want to make it they're you know the idea that they would need help and the inability of them to see all of the help that has been around them like mm-hmm. the scaffolding is invisible for them like they just have no idea that the the scaffoldings that they've used throughout their life yeah, um, absolutely i mean even uh, there's a great sociologist thomas shapiro who writes about um black and black and white wealth and inequality and it is the, the amount of whites who say they've made it on their own and they've had you know great educations um either at public or private schools and then they've had their colleges paid for they've had their college tuition paid for which is you know can be hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> is at least you know and and the 
uh, you know, five digits um, for people coming out. And and they've had that paid for and been given this real start in life, and they don't appreciate the yeah. fact that they've had college paid for. And you know? it's one of the interesting things, and it's been written about a lot since Trump, you know, and it landed on our fucking head, um, is this idea of talking about, like when you talk to poor white folks, when I talk to people from my town or whatever, to say, yeah, like your life is, it sucked and it's been hard and that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that you're black, right? Like it can both be hard for you and harder for somebody else. Absolutely. I, I like to say that, um, you know, you don't have to meddle in the, <laughs> the Olympics of pain and suffering. That's good. You know, to, you're still in pain and suffering even if right. you don't meddle. That doesn't change the fact that you're in pain. And, and even acknowledging that, I think, um, to a lot of rural white America and to, you know, all of these kind of blue collar areas, even in the Northeast that have been just decimated. Um, you know, by capitalism lately, just acknowledging their pain and suffering, I think, would go a long way. And and I think liberals have been a, have been really bad at that historically. You know, there's a reason Hillary Clinton didn't win. Uh, liberal haughty elites, especially from coastal cities, they have no idea about rural America, blue collar America. They have no idea about people's lives, and and they don't really take the time to learn about them and and what they want and need, and they don't acknowledge their pain. Again, these are people in a real crisis right now. Yeah, and I guess the thing that always that you know I argue about this with my my boss at Technology Review, Jason Ponton, who I love, you know, but educated at Oxford. Means they he's dual citizenship. He's American and British. Went to very good schools. He's very posh, very elite, and we argue about this all the time. Um, because he's like, there's nothing of value in those areas. And I was like, there's nothing of value because all of the value has been extracted. And so, of course, they, anytime you come in to talk to them, all they think is the last time some asshole like you showed up, all our shit got taken away. Mm-hmm. And it's really, this is sort of the eternal issue that I have is like going back and talking is one thing, breaking down the sort of capital not that I want to end capitalism, but the structures of like this sort of violent capitalism where mm-hmm. things are destroyed for the benefit of the few. That to me is way bigger than people acknowledging their pain, right? Like, cause at a certain point I, I can only speak to the people that I know, but like they don't want to talk about that. stuff. And I know long-term we have to, but like they don't have opportunity. They don't see opportunity. They don't have hope. Like, that's the drugs are an output of those things. Like the, the right. like it's economics and hope and a belief that tomorrow could be better. Like they right. don't think tomorrow is going to be better. Well, I think that's part of <clears throat> our, our crisis in labor here, and that and that people, and especially you know, men historically in this country, have gotten a sense of self worth from their work. Yeah. And so when you have people constantly unemployed or underemployed, what that does psychologically, we still haven't grappled with. And that's why I think that that we have to re envision our entire structure of labor in this country, not only um, from the aspect of you know with technology with with globalization, with everything else, people have to work less. Everyone needs to work less. Um, we're going. We're entering into a society where you just simply don't need to work forty hours a week. Most people don't need to work that much. Right. Um, and and we also need to restructure 
what we do in these rural areas, because these extractive industries are not the only thing. You have a town of people. We need to move to a service economy, especially as baby boomers, especially are aging, and you're you're losing these rural hospitals. You know, if you had some sort of jobs program on a local or state level to actually um, pay people to be a community, to take care of each other, to have a, a, a state-of-the-art you know, preschool system, to have elderly care, to have in-home in care, hospice care. Uh, you would revolutionize society. You would revolutionize people's happiness. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to be, I think, a labor model that we'll hopefully move towards. And I think we'll be forced to moving towards because yeah. there's just not going to be any jobs coming back in a lot of these, you know, in these industries. They're not coming back. Every time, so I, most of my career accidentally became writing about technology. That was not what I set out to do, and then I did it because I got technology, and then all of a sudden 20 years went fucking by, and I was doing that. But along the way, like one of the like when Elon Musk announced the Hyperloops, and he was talking about, well, we can connect Pittsburgh to Chicago and Pittsburgh to D.C., I just kept thinking that's the absolute wrong thing to do. Like, if you could set hyperloops that go through rural communities and connect them to the major metropolitan areas so they can, I can get on a hyperloop in the morning at 8 o'clock in the morning and be in a city that's would be four hours to drive, but now it takes 45 minutes so that I can go to a job that's there and come back to my community. Right, or go to a doctor. Right. You know, I, how many people can't even go to the fucking doctor? Right. Uh, I guess hospital. I'm thinking about, like, economic security. Right. Like, with economic yeah. security comes all of these other things, right? And I'm like, mm -hmm. we're trying to connect the big cities, which I get. I live in a big city, so it'd be nice if I could get to New York in 30 minutes, but it'd be a whole lot nicer to connect 50 rural communities to mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, Philly, and D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes money and what doesn't. Right. It, well, exactly, right. Exactly the, how they figure that out. They're going to make money on city to city. They're going to be losing money on rural com you know, con uh, connections. Right, and it, you know, it, the 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 Appalachian thing, like w much of the reason that like rural Eastern Kentucky is poor, is because they would only build trains to the places where there was um, salt and timber, and mm -hmm. as soon as that stuff was taken away, they literally would just let the the line fall into disrepair. Right. 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 And so connectivity to me has always been. I mean, it's it, that changes everything. The ability to be in multiple places, mm -hmm. and I know that because, like, I have enough money that I can travel around. Like, not a lot, but I have lived all over the country. When it, when a job goes away, I can go wherever the next job is. Mm -hmm. And if you're poor, you can't fucking do that. Mm -hmm. You're not leaving Clay well, County I, and hoping you get to Lexington and can find a job and a place to live. And again, how do you combat you know racism and xenophobia and sexism and all you know every uh, you know, homophobia? You you get out of the rural areas and go to a big city for your first time. Right. Uh, I mean, seriously, that, that going to the big city, getting out of these little rural areas, that changes people's perspectives. I think so greatly. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think. I know me well enough to know that eighteen-year-old me who left Loveland, Ohio socially is not who 46 year old me is and i've lived in austin san francisco Ber you know i've lived in major blue areas most of my life and i don't think i came out like a a total shit bag <laughs> but probably like a mid-level shit bag you know like um 
and being in those places, one, I was a reader, and two, I just ended up in places that were always really diverse, some of that because I was poor, and so you live in areas where you're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is just normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think over time that just became a thing that I, I now know, I always tell my students, it, nature is diverse. You can't go out into the world and see homogeny anywhere. So right. if you see it, you've created it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you look around and everybody you know is white, you made that happen because that is not the state of the universe. Mm-hmm. Right. Like shit grows on top of each other, it just does. Um, that's why, like, the other reason that I see those hyperloops and things like that, where I'm just like, so many of our social problems would go away. Not immediately, but pretty quickly. Because cities tend to be blue. You know, like, there are mm-hmm. not too many, like, red cities. Right. So, uh, this is, I, yeah, I could just fucking do this for all day long. Um, and I, But we're not going to because your kids are coming home. <laughs> you have other <laughs> things to do. So, what's next? Like, you're sort of looking at these other mediums. I also know that you're working on some other things. Like, are you staying in this sort of southern poverty Sphere, or you have some. Oh yes, um, oh yes. I mean, I, I definitely, you so, know, want to. I'm staying involved um, in poverty and and getting actually trying to do something about it now. So not only will I continue to write about it, but um, trying to get involved in different intergovernmental agencies um, to alleviate poverty down here um, from a policy level. Um, on the history side of things, right now I'm recording the audiobook of Masterless Men. Oh, yes. um, hope to be done with that in the next month or so and retooling another big website launch. And with all of that, again, is to start incorporating some other multimedia. And I'm, I've got a big thing brewing right now um, that I'm not ready to give all the details <laughs> of, but it's going to be big. And I think it's going to revolutionize um, the way we, we take – uh, history and specifically history of slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, um, how we take it to the masses. And and I'm thinking, you know, branding. I'm thinking of star power. I'm thinking of, you know, all these socially conscious athletes. We got to get some people on board and 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 actually make history into, um, you know, a consumable product. A, a, as such, and and get it to the masses. People want to know this stuff. They're oh, not yeah. necessarily willing to sit down and read a bunch of books, but they want to know it. And so, if we can provide content to people in a medium that they enjoy, then you know, I think that's a recipe for success. You and I disagree on whether people are reading books or not, but I also <laughs> like a cosmos for history would be amazing. Like, I love Ken Burns, but like, I've seen enough Ken like. I don't know if I need 17 hours on the Civil War. Like, right. Not that it's not important, but I'm like, okay, like, I just don't. I love baseball, and watching the 10 innings of ba- his baseball yeah. is like, that's a month-long commitment. <laughs> but again, that goes to my point about the, the book uh, format, and I love literature. Literature yeah. to me is a different thing. But I think when people want to consume a subject, you know, history um, particularly, unless you're really into it, you know, writing an entire book on a small sliver of history, most people aren't buying that. No, if you want that, to take history to the masses, you got to do it a different way. No, I, that that I think if you're, unless you're really interested in the topic, but like I, like Gore Vidal's essay books, I love mm-hmm. those. Right, they are 
But then, like, when you try to, re- I'm trying to read the Empire series, and like, that's just fucking a bridge too far for me. But like, I love sitting down and reading these sort of slices of the moment of this really smart guy who, you know, is just sort of immersed in this sort of humanities of the world and is able to put moments of time into perspective. And like, I know your career is your career, and you're going to do the thing that you want. And like, as I'm reading your book, I'm just like, oh my god, like being able to explain to people. You said it earlier, um, the phrase, and you probably cringe as much as I do whenever people are like, I don't understand why these people vote against their self-interest. Mm-hmm. We probably have a different take on that. My response to them is, I don't know why you think you know what their self-interest is. No, that's actually mine, too. Okay, good. Uh, my, 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 <laughs> no, my, mine is that um, they actually usually are voting in their self-interest because there's a lot of different things right. that, uh, that that they could be interested in. And, again, a lot rural areas are structured so differently right. than the places where people who say that come from. Because right. when you're in a town, again, where there's one or two employers and you know everybody, you're not doing politically you know, something that's going to impact your livelihood or your job. Yeah, I always tell folks. If you think they're voting against their self-interest, that means you think they're dumb. Right. Why would they ever listen to you? Like, the the presentation of that question says so much more about you than it does about them. Absolutely. Uh, And so that's the kind of stuff. But um, I'm down for whatever the fuck you do because I love this book, and I know whatever comes next is also going to be equally smart and important. And these are not easy things to write about. Um, And the book is just so fucking good. It's just so good. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me, and uh, maybe we'll do it again uh, next next go round. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, when when you are doing your talk, uh, you guys let me know, and I will get down to the city, um, and we can all do this in person. Oh yeah, February eighth, New York City <laughs> People's Forum. Uh, you have a good day. It was great talking to you. All right, thanks, Brad. You too. There you have it. That was Carrie Lee. That was our conversation. She's great, right? She's great. She's fucking phenomenal. You should go buy the book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Don't forget, if you listen to the podcast, which you are doing if you have gotten this far, reviews are helpful. So whether it's iTunes or Google Play Music or Stitcher, wherever you are listening to this, if you can go leave a review, that would be helpful. Tell your friends, share it with people, make them listen. That would be most appreciative. We have a really good season. There's going to be more of this. And until then, I will see you around the internet. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? (laughs) 
your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.